I want to invite you to open your Bibles to Matthew 3, Matthew chapter 3, and before we jump into this morning's text, I want to spend just a little bit of time uh, unpacking this new series, as you see on the screens, that we have called Prepare Him Room. Prepare Him Room. You know, we wrapped up our series last Sunday on the table, just in time for Thanksgiving. Now we've come to this season, as you know by now, of Advent, as Brian introduced to us, and you know, of all seasons, this is the season of preparation, you agree? Of all the things between now and Christmas that we will do, that one is paramount. In fact, earlier this week, we had two teams, one out at Legacy, one in town, and we spent hours doing just that. We've got over, I think, nearly 20 trees between both sites stacked up all over the place. If you haven't been to our Legacy site, let me invite you. You've got to go out there between now and Christmas. It's, it's like a Hallmark card out there. We've got a Scandinavian sled with like, I don't know, over a dozen handmade quilts um, it's so beautiful. But really, we're just getting started, right? Now comes the preparation for our homes with guests. We prepare meals for parties. We prepare cookies and gifts. But here's where this series comes in. If we were to really take a step back and think about the biblical approach to the Christmas tradition, we would find very quickly that Jesus and his birth points us to a completely different kind of preparation than any of that. That side note before we jump in, it was this weekend just 10 years ago that I was with a, a student group. We were decorating the church just as, as we do at this time of year. And um, one of the kids came in and for some reason he was Scrooge and bad. I mean, it was Bah Humbug City. I pulled him aside. I said, what's up, dude? You're killing the Christmas vibe. Like everybody around you is kind of avoiding you tonight. He said, he said this, he said, my parents get so stressed out. That he said they fight all the way up until Christmas Day, and it starts today. He said they, they fought it out tonight. He said they, they take it out on us, then they take it out on each other. He said then Christmas morning comes, we all wake up, and suddenly we're supposed to fake it like we're one big happy family. He said, and I'm supposed to enjoy Christmas? You know how quickly we can lose the forest, I think, through the, the Christmas trees. So before we even jump into December, and we're not quite there yet, I think it's worth asking the question, what are we really preparing for? And I will give you a hint as to where I'm headed with, with the next four weeks. For the believer, it's not simply Christmas Day. There is something more to that. There has to be something more to that. And when we fail to see that, we set up to fail. If we don't calibrate now, we fail our relationships, we fail our marriages, we fail our kids, we fail our grandkids, we fail our witness, we fail our God. And so this morning to kick us off, I want us to turn to the one guy in scripture who did this, I'm going to say better than anyone, made way better than anyone I can think of. And we're going to turn to Matthew's gospel chapter three, and we're going to look at this guy named John the Baptist. John the Baptist. It's not particularly a Christmas text, but I think it, it helps us get in the, the mood of preparation. We're going to read verses one through 12 together. And let me invite you to just see how John prepares the way for the coming of the, the king. Look at this. In those days, John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea, saying, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. For this is he who was spoken of by the prophet Isaiah when he said, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. Now John wore a garment of camel's hair and a leather belt around his waist. His food was locusts and wild honey. Then Jerusalem and all of Judea and all the region about the Jordan were going out to him and they were baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. 
But when he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming to his baptism, he said to them, you brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Bear fruit in keeping with repentance. Do not presume to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father, for I tell you, God is able from those stones to raise up children for Abraham. Even now the ax is laid at the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. I baptize you with water for repentance, but he who is coming after me is mightier than I, whose sandals I am not worthy to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand, and he will clear his threshing floor and gather his wheat into the barn, but the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God endures forever. So picture with me a small, intimate baby shower, family only. Decades before our lesson, Mary, the mother of Jesus, and Elizabeth, the mother of John, had come together in this town called Judah to celebrate their pregnancies together. Luke's gospel tells us the two were relatives, they were cousins. And as these two women came together, this strange thing happened. You might remember, Elizabeth suddenly felt her child within her, leaping for joy in her womb. Look at this in Luke 1, she told Mary, the sound of your greeting came to my ears and the baby in my womb leapt for joy within me. From that day onward, John's entire existence was now laser focused in preparing the way of Jesus' ministry. Just consider this, John hadn't even been given a name at this point. Jesus wasn't hardly a twinkle in his mom's eye. And yet long before either he or Christ were born, Christ's plans and purposes were already unfolding in these two lives. But I give you that, right? Because for 30 some odd years after this, scripture records literally almost nothing about these two men's life. Aside from Jesus' birth, we know nearly, not hardly nothing. But then we turn to Matthew 3, as we've done this morning, and we, we find this story of preparation, really unlike any story of preparation before or after. And out in the middle of nowhere, there is this man preparing the way for the coming of this king. We're told, in those days, John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea. And his message was super clear, really simple. You could say it was a one-word sermon. He said, repent, that's the word, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Repent, title, subtitle, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Now you know by now, you've been listening to me long enough, there's no such thing as a one word sermon. There's always a few other things to say. So John begins this speaking to this mostly Jewish crowd and look again at how he begins in verse three. He says, I am the one who was spoken of by the prophet Isaiah when he said, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, Prepare the way of the Lord. In antiquity, anytime you saw a king riding into town, they would be preceded days before by a messenger or a herald who would be sent ahead of them. And as the front runner of this entourage, they would literally prepare the path of this town for royalty to come. And as the front runner came along, the message was clear every time. Every time it was make way, prepare for the king, prepare him room. The king and therefore his kingdom are on their way. And in fact, you'll still see remnants of this today. You take Queen Elizabeth for a minute. Now, just before her death, the only queen in history, she was the one to have a platinum jubilee, 70 years on the throne. 
And just look at these pictures. You know, as Americans, I think we missed how massive of an undertaking this was. There were 1,458 formal events across the UK in one day. In addition, after that, there were another 1,775 street parties for the rest. Kingdom spent millions, right? Every town was scrubbed clean, the restaurants packed full, flags and banners hanging perfectly, businesses shut down, pubs wide open. Why is that? Because there was this preparation, right, that was required for the monarchy. There has always been this tradition of, of, of people preparing for their kings and their queens to come. So it makes perfect sense then that long before Jesus does his first act of ministry, we hear this voice crying in the wilderness. And that word crying in the Greek here, it really means shouting, yelling, screaming. John is belting out, prepare the way of the Lord. I love how one scholar expounded on this. He said, you know, we typically shout for three reasons. Think about this with me. When people are distant, when people are deaf, or when people are angry. I'll add one more to the list. I feel like we shout when people are in danger. Would you agree? When my daughter Taylor was about four years old, she fell into this lake. We were fishing. She went straight underwater. I screamed. I don't even remember what I said. I went down, picked her up grabbed her. She's covered in water, almost lost her life from my perspective. And she's sobbing, right? She's traumatized, not by the water, but because dad just yelled at her. See, John is shouting this gospel, this, this gospel message over these people who are distant from their God, who have become deaf to God's word, who were angry in their disorientation and lost and therefore in eternal danger. And it seems to me when I look at that list, this is still the world we live in. Here's John the Baptist preparing the way. And let's face it, it's kind of an odd picture, right? He looks the part of a, a poor, half-crazy homeless man dressed in camel's hair, leather belt, eating bugs and honey. And yet his message is unmistakable. Thousands are coming to see him in these nearby towns just to hear what he has to say. I want to give you a picture and we're going to work it through. But here just a few weeks ago that... The west entrance, you'll remember, to Yellowstone reopened. And as you know, they built that road on top of the old stagecoach road from back in 1879. They said the original plan was, was so dangerous, that original road, that they poured over $20 million into renovations just so you and I could visit again. They've already called this build one of the greatest accomplishments in the history of the park. Because in just months, they excavated 75,000 cubic feet of dirt, 14,500 tons of asphalt, 4,700 feet of guardrail, and then they nailed 632 soil nails, some of which were 40 feet in length, just to stabilize the ground. Now keep that image in mind. I'm going somewhere with this. John takes the same kind of image, right, of this road paved smooth to talk of the coming of the king. And what we often forget is that in doing this, John has taken this ancient text from the Old Testament, this old road, this old path, and he overlays this new meaning on top of it by God's inspiration. John is actually quoting this timeless prophecy that God's people had clung to for years. And here's why I bring this up. Here's why this matters. Side tangent. Centuries before John arrived on scene, there was another prophet who had foretold of this day. His name was Isaiah. And much like John, Isaiah had brought God's word to a people who were lost, angry, distant, and deaf. God's people were in a bad way at this time. 
and their rebellion, God had allowed them to be exiled from their homes. The holy city of Jerusalem was destroyed. The Babylonian empire had conquered the region. And as their city sort of sat in ashes, life became hopeless. So in this act of contrition, they now begin pleading and begging with God for his mercy and deliverance. And God shows up. And look at what he says through his prophet Isaiah. Look at this in Isaiah 40. He says, Isaiah, tell him this. Comfort my people. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem. Cry to her that her warfare is over. Her iniquity is pardoned. She's received from the Lord's hand double for all of her sins. A voice cries in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. You see how John uses this? Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Every valley shall be lifted up. Every mountain be made low. The uneven ground shall become level. The rough places plain. And the glory of the Lord will be revealed. All flesh will see it together. The mouth of the Lord has spoken. In other words, God says to his people, you're coming home. Babylon will be no more. Your city will be rebuilt. God's presence is coming back into the temple. Prepare the way. This is what's known as a dual fulfillment of prophecy of what the word from the Lord that carries both short-term meaning but then also long-term meaning and points us to Christ. So stay with me here. Fast forward to John who is now standing in this new moment in the middle of the desert. Jesus is about to come on scene. John is declaring the old road of Isaiah is now coming new. Just as God liberates his people from Babylon, now Jesus is gonna liberate his people from their sin. John says, make his path straight. The kingdom of heaven is at hand. Nearly everyone with an earshot would have understood the context of what he was saying. I want to look at two basic ways that John now lays the groundwork for this Messiah. As we think maybe a little bit differently about what preparation looks like this year. One's long. The first point's long. The second is short. One's long, one's short. And the first is this. He talks about confession of sin as a way of preparing the way. And second, as a follow-up to that, he says we should also bear fruit in keeping with that repentance. So let's just look at these two. Let's look first at this confession of sin. Look at this in verse 5. It says, Then Jerusalem, Judea, and all the region were going out to him. It's a packed house. And they were baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. Now just ask this with me. What is it about this man who eats weird things, dresses like a nomad, seems half crazy, and yet the entire region is coming to meet with him? Josephus, who was quite the historian of the time, he, he documents there were thousands coming to see John. And it's clear, right? They're not coming for the locusts and honey. They, they've come to hear this prophet's word. There's something powerful in this message that he speaks. And as I said, it's a one-word sermon. Repent. The Greek word here is metanoia. It means to change one's orientation, to turn. And you know the word, but let me ask you this. When you hear it, what do you think of? When I say repent, what memories come to mind? Be honest. What do you hear? What does it hearken you back to? You know, when I hear the word repent, I often think of like a graceless law-pounding fist. Anybody else feel that way? And if that's the picture that you get, let me just say you need to throw that away. That's the wrong picture. Because to repent, to metanoia, is to have this total change in thought, a complete reorientation in your lifestyle, because you have become so overcome and overwhelmed by the grace of the coming of the Messiah that you can't help yourself. 
That God's grace has gotten a hold of you so much that you can't help but repent of your sin and turn back towards the Lord. It is a gift of the Holy Spirit. See, and hear this, for John, to repent is the message of preparation. It is not go make cookies for Christmas. It is not go get your shopping list in order. You only got four weeks left. It's not put up the Christmas lights. It's not get the Christmas cards sent out. To prepare him room for John is to change the entire course of your life. And it starts with this baptism and this confession of sin. Now, why is that? Why would John equate repentance with preparation? You see how he's done that? It seems to me you can't receive something you don't believe you need. That's why. The king is never honored by the one who refuses to bow their knee, right? The king doesn't give bread to the one who claims to have plenty already. The king gives to the one who asks for it. See, and I feel like this right here, this is where the gospel can get offensive, right? No one wants to be told they're less than. No one wants to see themselves as having failed, called out. And frankly, we, we get settled in our sinful patterns. They become a comfort blanket. But how can you prepare for the king if you see your life as without need for the king? Story's been told many times over of King Frederick II, 18th century in Prussia. He once visited a prison in Berlin to offer a one pardon per year, as was his custom, to one inmate. And while he was there, the, the prisoners encircled him, trying to convince him of their need for pardon. And every one of them shouted out their innocence. They told him, I was wrongly convicted. I didn't get the right trial. I did nothing. I'm innocent. But in this room, as the story goes, this one man sat in the corner over by himself and the king noticed him. He walked over and he said to him, well, what brought you here? He said to the king, he said, well, I'm here for armed robbery. And the king asked, he said, well, are you guilty of this crime? He said, oh yes, very much so. I deserve every bit of my punishment, the sentence in full. The king thought about it for a moment. He turned to his warden and he said, let's do this. Release this guilty man. I don't want him corrupting any of the innocent around him. See, it's crazy. John's ministry only lasted two years, and yet Jesus said, among those born of women, there is not one who is greater. And part of what makes John so great is by the Holy Spirit, he's preaching this message of repentance, of metanoia. That is, if we truly want to prepare our hearts for the celebration of Jesus' birth, it's right there. And not just a confession of the sin to the Lord or confession of our sin to one another. That's the begins there. But John's talking about an entirely new way of life. A completely different behavior. It is to wake up in the morning and say, Lord, not my will, but thine be done. It's to go to bed at night and say, Lord, if there was any way in me that failed you today, would you give me mercy to follow you more faithfully tomorrow? It's to say, maybe even right now, God, before I let the schedule take me away, before the busyness of the season unfolds, would you help me to carve out a space of stillness and Sabbath? And then watch how that pattern begins to change you into a much healthier follower of Christ. Which really brings me to the second matter. I promised you it would be short. Look at this in verse 7. This is one of my favorite verses in all of Scripture. It is the, the bearing fruit. It says, when John saw the religious experts coming to his baptism, he said to them, you brood of vipers. 
He just called them sons of snakes. Who warned you of the wrath to come? Bear fruit, he says, in keeping with repentance. Now, John shifted a little bit. Here's the iron fist. This is where this comes down. These are some tough words to chew on. See, Jesus sees this religious elite coming to him, and he knows they're the ones who believe they have no need for confession. They don't really need a king. They, they don't need a savior. They've arrived. They're righteous. And he calls them a family of snakes. You know, snakes are crafty, right? Snakes are a deadly thing. John says to this religious elite, he says, in your own righteousness, you now have this poisonous detriment. Do you not see that with Christ comes this justice? He says, give your life to him and bear fruit in keeping with repentance. See, if we truly want to prepare him room, it seems to me it begins with these two things. The confession of our own need for Jesus in the first place, that's why we're here. And then living a life that now turns us from living for our kingdom and instead now living for his. Because here's the reality, and I'll close for this. If you think about it, we're really not preparing our hearts for Christmas Day. That's, that's not what Advent is about. When we sing those lyrics on, uh, on Christmas Eve, Joy to the World, and we sing, let every heart prepare him room, we don't mean everything goes back to normal by New Year's. No, what we mean is to prepare our lives for something much more eternal and permanent. We are preparing for the one who was to come, who has come, and here's the important part, who is to come. And like John, Jesus has said he's coming back for his bride. Look at this in Romans 13, 11. Paul says this, he says, the hour has already come for you to wake up because our salvation is nearer now than when we first believed. The night is nearly over, the day is almost here. So put aside your deeds of darkness, he says, and put on the armor of light. Christmas is 29 days away. Believe me, nobody knows that better than the guy preaching on Christmas Eve. But here's the reality. In the meantime, no one knows the day or the hour of Jesus' return. And the question is, how will we prepare him room this year? Just sit and soak with that. How would your life change tomorrow if you opened up the newspaper and you read Jesus to make his return this week? I bet you, I guarantee you, we would do a lot less cooking and a lot less shopping and a lot less decorating. And instead, there would be a lot more praying and a lot more study and singing and worship of that king. Isaiah said it well. He said, every mountain of sinful pride all of our self-sufficiency, the, the hills of our self-righteousness will be made low. And every valley of deceit and immorality and rebellion shall be removed. Let every heart prepare him room. Let me ask God to help us do that. Pray with me, will you? Lord, you have promised us that you would be with us always to the end of the age. You have promised us that you will return for your bride. So God, as we, as we look to this December and we, we step into the traditions that are so familiar to us and we sing the hymns 
as we so often do. Lord, would you help us not to get stuck on repeat? Would you help us not to get stuck in, in the routine and the rhythm of the year? But Lord, would you keep us mindful of who it is that we're worshiping? What it is that you've called us to prepare for? God, we ask that as we go out into this world from this sanctuary, today and every day, you would make us lights into a world that needs to see you and experience your love. God, that we would be living bodies of repentance, of lives that have turned away from pursuing our, our own dreams and our own goals, and Lord, lives that have given our lives for you. God, we thank you for loving us enough to send your one and only son to be born and to die for us. God, help us to live that love with all the days of our life. And may that start right now, Lord. In Jesus' name, all God's people said.